uh, we've been going through a, a series of sermons uh, called Help My Unbelief, and we've been addressing some of the, the primary concerns that people have as they uh, decide to come to Jesus, uh, or whether or not to come to Jesus. Some of the questions that we have on the inside as well that continue to plague us and perplex us. Can this really be true? Is this really how God works? We've looked at a number of different questions, and Steve will address the, the final one next week, how to believe again. How do we begin to take hold of the gospel and believe again if we have been struggling with some extended time of doubt, or if we've uh, believed a long time ago and now have decided, I'm going to investigate again. How do we believe again? Uh, and then we'll take up a series, a five-week series on the I am, I am statements of John for our time of Advent and Epiphany. But you got a hint during the, the prayers of the people of what we're addressing this morning, the silence of God, the apparent slowness of his kingdom. Where is God in my pain? Where is God in the pain and the problems of the world? Why is it not more obvious that he has come and that the kingdom is present? Many of the questions have had this subtext to them, that God doesn't often show up like we expect him to that God is often not like we expect him to or want him to be. And I know this because I talk to many of you, and I know myself, I know the questions that I have, that we have each, many of us, have turned to God in a scary moment, in a vulnerable moment, in a needy moment, and we've prayed for God to intervene. And what have we gotten? Silence. The deafening silence of God seeming to stand away from our moments of need. Why be a Christian? Why, why submit to the gospel? Why pay the cultural cost of being a Christian if God is not going to show up in my moments of need? If he's not going to intervene in my circumstances. So we begin to wonder, what have I done wrong? Have I not, not prayed hard enough? Is God upset with me? Is he angry with me? What am I not doing or is he there at all? In this passage that we're about to read, we see one of the pillars of the early church, one of the rock stars of Christianity wrestling with this very issue. Jesus, where are you? Why are you not here? Why are you not intervening? He questions God and discovers that the answers that God has, has for him are far from satisfying, far from what he expected. Thankfully, the Bible is full of these types of people. They're full of, of losers. They're full of doubters. They're full of, it's full of skeptics, people that question God, people that challenge God. If you're who you say you are, why are you not more present? Why are you not more obvious? Thankfully, the Bible is full of people that have questions just like you and me and not simply of triumphant saints. And if we'll take up the Bible with honesty, we'll find that the Bible wrestles with some of the questions that you and I have. And the Bible invites us into a story and into a relationship with God that is not one of full certitude, but it's one of questions. And it's one where we can take our questions to God. So let's read our passage as one of the rock stars of Christianity does just that. This is about John. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, 
heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back to report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and the violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let, him, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do not lock yourself away from our questions, that you do not insulate yourself from our doubts and skepticism, but that you receive them, that you meet us where we are, that you meet us in our questions, that you meet us in the midst of our trials and our difficulties. Father, as we process through this difficult text and the difficult concept of how your kingdom comes and how it is apparently so slow and how you are often so silent, Would you speak into our doubts? Would you meet us in these questions? Would you meet us in our time of need? Father, let us learn from John's question. Let us learn from Jesus' answer. And Father, we pray that you would bless this reading of your word and this time of preaching and hearing. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, John was a forerunner of Jesus. He was a prophet, as we read in the passage, who was sent to prepare the way for for the Messiah. He baptized Jesus, and then he gladly pledges his disciples to Jesus. He had recognized Jesus for who he is. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one in whom the kingdom is present. And he backed Jesus' messianic claims. But now he's struggling. Now he has concerns. Now he has doubts. He was so certain earlier. He knew definitively this was the one. So what has happened? What's happened in the intervening time? Well, John had been a sensation. He had 
People who had come out into the wilderness to listen to him preach. He had followers. He had disciples, people that said, John, you are the forerunner. You are the one who is preparing the way, or maybe you are the one. And he says, no, there is another that is coming. But since that baptism, since Jesus came, and since John recognized him for who he was, and John's disciples began to be Jesus' disciples, John now is where? He's in prison. Herod has thrown him into prison, and he's now largely irrelevant to the outside world. He's forgotten because the crowds have gone to Jesus, his cousin. Now, it's not, as we would think, petty jealousy. I'm in prison, Jesus. Now my disciples are your disciples. What's going on? Answer me that. It's not petty jealousy, but instead it's confusion. Why, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he actually is the Messiah, why am I in prison? Why is my life going so badly? If you are the Messiah, then maybe you have some overriding reason why I'm in prison, but I can't see it. I don't get it. So we asked Jesus again, Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? Now we can see that from Jesus' answer that he knows what's going on in John's heart and in his mind. John is not simply asking for a theological answer. He's not simply asking for to, be, to, to hear about the Messiah again. He wants to know if he's made a colossal mistake, if he's given his career to something that is ultimately not true. What if I've wasted my career? Now, in our confession and in other parts of, of the Scripture, when John sees Jesus, he says, This is the Lamb of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is present in this one. And Jesus joins John in the river, and John baptizes him. And then John is arrested. In Jesus, the kingdom is present. That's John's proclamation. Jesus says the very same thing. His first proclamation in ministry is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So apparently there's some difference of opinion. There's some different understanding from what John says is the kingdom and how it's present in Jesus and how Jesus envisions this kingdom being present. John is asking what many of us ask if we're Christians. Why not more justice? Why not more peace? Why not more reason to believe? Why not more certainty? Why not more evidence that we can latch on to? Why is my life still going so badly if Jesus' kingdom is really present? We all have expectations of what it should look like when God steps into our world and when God steps into our lives. We have expectations of what a supposedly revolutionary program should offer, what it should look like. But to John's expectations, Jesus gives a very passive answer. Did you notice what he says? There's, there's no actor here. There's no I. He doesn't say, I'm the one. Look, I raise the dead. I restore sight. I restore hearing. But he gives a very passive answer. The lame walk, the blind see. The good news is preached to the poor. Who's the actor in that? Who's the cause? He's so indirect and oblique in the way that he answers this question. Is this enough for John? Is this enough of an answer? Is this enough for you? John is still in prison. 
we still don't have a job. We don't still have the relationship that we've been looking for. We still, still see indignities from our past that are invading our present with great force. What of those who aren't healed by Jesus? What of the leper who couldn't walk far enough to meet Jesus? What of the blind person who couldn't find his way to Jesus? What of them? Certainly we see these miracles happening near to Jesus, but what about everyone else in the world? And what about me? Does he answer my questions? Does he meet my needs? Does he heal my problems and circumstances? Has the kingdom really arrived in Jesus? Has it arrived for you? Jesus is experiencing here what any pastor who's come into a new situation has experienced. It's easy to fall in love with the new guy before he gets here. It's easy to love the new pastor at a distance and to be excited about how the church is going to prosper when they come on the scene. And then they get here. And after a few months or weeks, you realize that they're not the Savior that you hope for that his plans for the church might not fully accommodate your plans. And what people are saying to Jesus as pastor, as preacher, Jesus, you've promised us a lot of things that I don't see coming true. What I want is not accommodated in your plan. Jesus, you say you're the chosen one, but it sure doesn't look like it. Are you the one, John says, And Jesus answers him obliquely, well, look around me. What's going on around me? What's going on in the lives of those that come to me? And he pinches this passage from Isaiah that we read earlier. He doesn't quote it directly, but he transforms it. And what's going on in that passage are small things being changed, not large. It's local things, not universal. It's weak people, not the powerful. Now, there's other parts of Isaiah, this passage, where it says, one day all of the world will be transformed. One day there will be universal voice to my kingdom. One one day there will be undisputable, indisputable evidence. But what Jesus chooses to focus upon in his, the way that the kingdom is present in him, is small things, weak things, local things, not universal things. God's way of working Redemption into our world takes form that in ways that doesn't accord well with our expectations of what it, should be, what it should look like if God were to show up in our lives. It doesn't accord well with our theories of power and of significance. It's a work that's often disappointing in the short run. As we begin to celebrate in a few weeks the, the season of Advent, what are we focusing upon We're not focusing upon victory. We're focusing upon the way that the kingdom breaks in in a very small, insignificant, weak way that God takes up residence in a a baby, in a child. Is this the way that the kingdom will be established, that God's power comes into the world? He begins by sending a child instead of a warrior. He sends servants instead of kings and powerful people. He sends you And he sends me, often weak, insignificant things. So what what can we learn from this interchange? What are a couple of things that we can see going on? First of all, we need to make sure that we understand Jesus before we understand ourselves. We need to understand the way that Jesus sees the world before we understand how we should see the world. 
And then secondly, secondly, if we reject him, if we reject his kingdom, we don't close the book and stop looking, but we'll continue to search for him or something like him. So first of all, we can't understand ourselves before we understand him. John has a big problem, but he doesn't say, if you're the one, get me out of here, Jesus. He doesn't demand proofs like the Roman centurions do when Jesus is on the cross. Jesus, if you're the one, take yourself down from the cross. Come on. He doesn't demand something like that. But see, his questions, as are ours, are based on assumptions, and assumptions that we know what the world should look like, that we know what any positive revolutionary program should result in, that we know what it should look like when God enters the world. And that it's our circumstances and not us that need to change. And we think that we can vet the relevance of Jesus and of his kingdom. That we can vet his viability. But what if he is who he says he is? What if he is the one who is to come? Wouldn't that trump all of our assumptions? Wouldn't that change our questions dramatically? Wouldn't it cause us to ask different questions entirely if he is the one? It changes the whole concept. John doesn't say, set me free. He is saying, how can I know what is right for me until I know if you are right? How can I know what is right and wrong with my situation until I know if you're the one? That's the driving question. Jesus, I have said you are the one. Is that true? I have staked my life and career on that. I'm in prison. Are you the one? You see, it changes the whole question. John is now asking the first things of Jesus. Who are you and how do you see the world? And then I can accommodate my own situation into that. Not Jesus, please accommodate yourself into my circumstances and situation. You see, the Roman, the Roman centurion is making a demand. Be God on my terms. If you're who you say you are, then give me proof. Show me indisputably in ways that I can, re- I can understand. I'm not interested in whether you're king of the Jews, but I want to know whether you're God on my terms. Prove yourself. And isn't this the demand of our age? If God is real, why is it not more obvious? Why can you not prove to me that God exists? Why have you not submitted God to my demands and bowed before my questions and difficulties? Why do you seem to stand far off? In our questions, often it's not that we want to know his answers, but we want him to answer on our terms. We want him to answer according to our conditions. Instead, are you the one, Jesus? That's the primary question. That's the main question. That's the thing that we all have to wrestle with. Jesus, are you the one? And then help me to submit to that. This will change everything. This will change our questions. We can't understand ourselves and our situation first until we get the answer to that question. Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for another? And notice there's another another aspect that is implicit in that. He doesn't say, Jesus, should we, are you the one or should we stop looking? He says, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? If we get a no from Jesus, if we decide that he's not 
who he says he is. We'll keep looking. We'll keep looking for something that will replace Jesus. We'll keep looking for a revolutionary. We'll keep looking for something or someone that will make the same type of promises that Jesus does. We may reject Jesus because he's not who he expected or because he didn't answer the questions that I thought were relevant. He didn't step into my pain like I thought that he should. And even so, we won't close the book and stop looking. Whether it's another religion whether it's money that provides certitude and protection, whether it's a relationship that will tell us that we're something, whether it's a job that makes us feel significant, whatever it is, we'll keep looking until, we'll find, until we find something that will answer our biggest questions that we think should be answered. And here's the rub. Here's the rub. Do any of the other options provide a better, more lasting answer to the silence? If you pick another option, do you see your questions going away? Does revolution happen immediately in those circumstances or in that understanding of the world? If apparent silence is a proof against Jesus, then it's a proof against all other options as well because you still live in the same world. You still have to ask. If you ask of Jesus, why is there apparent silence? You have to ask that for every other Jesus alternative as well. And the answers are no better. If we're going with another option, will that replacement, will that philosophy be more forgiving than Jesus? Will it be more willing to put up with your idiosyncrasies than Jesus will? Will he or it or that thing be able to absorb your shortcomings like Jesus promises to? Look at Jesus' response. It's not condescending. It's not demeaning. It's a bit oblique. But it answers the question, and he doesn't avoid it. The only people, Jesus says, who will be blessed are those who don't take offense at me, who don't stumble over me, who don't trip over who I really am, who don't trip over me as I am. The ones who are blessed by me are the ones who have wrestled with that offense, who have wrestled with the silence, who have wrestled with the apparent slowness, and yet still don't trip into the kingdom. Don't trip over Jesus. Don't stumble. Don't take offense. Look, if Jesus came in strength, if he came like we would expect a revolutionary to come, if he came in totalitarian power and said, this is how it will be, who would have stumbled over that? We may not have liked it, but we certainly wouldn't have stumbled because that's how we expect things to happen, through power, through significant, fast change. When the Romans come to town, they set up shop, and you're either in the kingdom or you're dead. Very obvious, very evident. You can't argue with that. You can either submit or you can be dead. But no one's stumbling over that. No one's questioning, is, is this real? Or do they really, did they really set up their kingdom? But if you come in weakness, if you come to bring peace, if you come to use the weak things of the world to bring forth your kingdom, you can stumble over that. There's a lot of question. There's a lot of difficulty in that. Jesus comes not like the Romans to set up power by the sword and by force, but he comes and he says, I'm the power for the powerless. I'm the strength for the weak. To follow me, to be helped by me, you have to be powerless. You have to be weak. You have to, have to be a leper. 
It's those. It's those that are needy, those that are powerless, those that can't reciprocate Jesus' offer. It's those that are helped. It's those that are blessed. It's those that don't stumble. It's those who hear Jesus in the midst of silence. Blessed are those, Jesus said, who have wrestled with my offensiveness, the ones who have seen that I'm different from everything they've considered before. So what do we do? What do we do with this apparent silence? How do we reconcile that in an existential way, in a daily way? We look to Jesus. Look, he says to John, what do you see? Look at what's happening around me. Who is associating with me? Who is coming to me? It is not the powerful. It is not the wealthy. It is not those who have a certainty about the way that the world should go, but it's those who are needy, those who are powerless, those who are defensiveless, those who have questions, those who have skepticism. Jesus, are you the one? We look to Jesus. He does not tell John's messengers, of course I'm the one who would come, who had come. Instead, he says, see for yourselves what is going on around me. Look, the lame can walk. The blind can see. The good news is preached to the poor. That's the certainty that I offer. That's the way that I tell you that I am indeed the one because that's what's been prophesied from the very beginning. That's what Isaiah prophesied. If you expected a kingdom of power, you missed it. The kingdom comes to the weak, the needy, the leper, the reprobate, those who are defenseless and go to God for their defense those who can't reciprocate. Friends, John got his answer, but he didn't get his solution. He got an answer to his question, but his problems, his circumstances weren't changed in the least. In terms of the status of the world, he gets Jesus' answer that the world is not eternal, that I have overcome the world. But in terms of the solution, he's not satisfied. He's still in, pres- in prison, and only a few months later, is li- likely a few months later, he's beheaded in Herod's court. Now, Jesus could have marched into Herod's court and said, I demand of you, Herod, to l- let John go. Could he have done that? Of course. And if Herod had refused, then Jesus could have taken him by force. But instead, what does he do for John? He says, John, don't fear because I have overcome the world. I am the one. I am the Messiah. I am the one that is bringing peace to the whole world, but it comes in ways that you don't expect. It comes in ways that don't accord well with our understanding of power and the way things should go. There is, friends, an end to the silence, but it's not nearly as loud as we would hope. It's not the answer that we would like, at least not in the short term. But Jesus doesn't stand far off from the difficult circumstances of our life. He doesn't say, I have done this, now deal with it. I have come to the world, I have died, and so now you're on your own until I come again. But instead, he enters in. He enters into our story, enters into our pain, and lets it do its worst to him on our behalf. The Savior of the world, the Messiah, the crucified one who was to come. The chosen one is crucified between two thieves. 
And one of the thieves says to him, get down off that cross if you're who you say you are, just as the Roman centurions had said. Get down off the cross and end this. Set us free, Jesus. And what does he get? He gets silence. He gets true silence from Jesus. But the other one confesses their sin and says, Jesus is the guiltless one. I am full of guilt. I should be here on the cross, but Jesus should not. And what does Jesus say to him? What does Jesus answer to him? Real words of promise, of a hope, of future joy. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you see the two different responses, the two different questions? One, Jesus, will you show up how I expect you to show up? And once you do, then perhaps I will submit. The other says, I submit to you not because you demand it, but because I see you are guiltless and you are dying a criminal's death that only I should die. And in that circumstance, that person, that thief, doesn't get silence. He gets the answer that all of the ages have been, been hoping for. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's Jesus' final answer to the silence. One of the commentators that I've been reading in, in this series is Helmut Tilike, and he says, Everyone who has known Jesus Christ will testify Since that time, something new has entered my life. The darkness in my life that used to throw me into despondency can master me no longer. Granted, I do have cares, as as others do. Yet daily, I experience the miracle of having someone who will lift them from me, someone to whom I can entrust them. And if his hand touches them, they are mysteriously transformed. Before they were an oppressive mortgage upon my life, yet now they have become the opportunity for faith. They have become the material out of which God will fashion my hope and a joyful nevertheless. And when I discover that my end is at hand, that I am becoming old and weary, he will transform the sorrow of departure into the joy of homecoming. The answer, friends, ultimately to the silence is that divine nevertheless, that Jesus has come into the world in a way that none of us would have expected, in a way that none of us would want. But he comes and says, one day, the kingdom is present in me. Look, in a local sense, the lame walk, the blind see, the good news is preached to the poor. But there's this divine nevertheless that hangs over that and said, even though there are still those who aren't healed, Aren't su- that are still suffering, one day that prophecy that we read in Isaiah will be true in fullness, in universality, that God will end his silence once and for, for all and will announce in a way that no one can reject, that no one can say no to because it's obvious. It's overwhelming. In the final analysis, the indirectness of Jesus' answer, the, the slowness of his kingdom propels us not towards a confident certitude, not, but instead to a, a grasping, a questioning faith, a clinging posture. It calls us to faith. That Jesus is the Savior, not, first of all, from the world, but he's the Savior in the midst of the world. He comes in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our pain, and asks us to hold on to him. 
And in that, those who have been through circumstances that are difficult, either tragic or just the small little things that we deal with, have been able to see that Jesus does show up. He does in the silence. It's often ways that we don't expect and often things, ways that we don't want. But he is present, and he's real and present among his people, and he's present among us here. Let's pray, and let's ask him to reveal himself in a new way as we come to the table. Father, we pray that we would take hold of Jesus, not in the way that we want, but in the way that he has offered. Lord, we pray that for those of us who are questioning, are seeking, are dealing with great tragedy and pain and heartache, and up until now we haven't seen you show up in the way that comforts us, in the way that brings kindness, brings closeness, uh, your closeness to us, I pray that you would show up in a new way in a fresh way. We pray that this worship service, that coming to the table this time would be the time where you reveal yourself in a new way, in a way that we can take hold of. Father, walk near to us and let us walk near to you in return. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.